Welcome, listeners, to the Cloud and Culture Podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time, we're only in the third episode after all. Here's a quick background. I'm Derek Harris from VMware. And I'm Danielle Burrow from VMware. And this podcast is focused on VMware Pivotal Labs and the work done by our team of experts to help organizations ranging from startups to Fortune 500s shift their software development into high gear. As the title suggests, that entails modernizing and sometimes just kickstarting software development and tooling, as well as helping clients create a culture that will allow them to run efficient, self-sufficient software development teams for the long term. And our guest this week is Josh Rosso, a staff architect at VMware who has been around Kubernetes for about as long as anyone, first at CoreOS, then at Heptio, and now at VMware. He spends a lot of time working with customers on their Kubernetes environments, and he's seen a lot with regard to what works, what doesn't, and where the gotchas are, especially as organizations move from testing Kubernetes to deploying it in production and then to scaling it. He also co-hosts the Podlets and TGIK podcast along with other VMware Kubernetes experts. And if you're thinking about using Kubernetes to modernize your app infrastructure, sorry, your app infrastructure, you should learn a lot in this episode. And although we talk a lot about Kubernetes in the general sense, don't forget that VMware offers a whole collection of products to improve and simplify the Kubernetes experience. Our Tanzu lineup features tools that make it easier to manage Kubernetes clusters, manage multi-cluster and multi-cloud Kubernetes environments, and everything in between. VMware has also developed a range of open source projects to advance the Kubernetes experience, including Harbor, Valero, Octant, and Entrea. And of course, VMware Pivotal Labs has an entire team of Kubernetes experts, including Josh, who are dedicated to helping organizations design and implement a successful path to production at scale with Kubernetes. So listen to Josh now, and then explore our Kubernetes story at tanzu.vmware.com. And if you want to learn more about how VMware Pivotal Labs can help you on your modernization and Kubernetes journeys, visit tanzu.vmware.com labs. So Josh, thanks for joining us. Um, could you start by just giving us a little bit of background on your experience working with Kubernetes? Absolutely. So I've been doing Kubernetes for what I perceive to be a while, given that Kubernetes is still a bit of a newer project. I started out doing Kubernetes full-time at a company called CoreOS that a lot of the listeners might be familiar with. Uh, CoreOS worked on things like etcd, which is the data store of Kubernetes, and built out our own Kubernetes distribution um, which was called Tectonic, and now a lot of those bits are uh, relevant in OpenShift. When Red Hat bought us, I spent a very micro amount of time there before joining Heptio uh, with Craig McLucky and Joe Beta and was helping bring Kubernetes to the enterprise, specifically kind of open source, upstream compliant Kubernetes when that was a really big deal back in the day uh, and still is today to some degree. Um, and now I'm at VMware uh, and my... My day-to-day -day job has been pretty similar throughout that whole kind of progression of companies in that I go to fairly large organizations, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 100, and help them establish a Kubernetes strategy and instantiate it, architect it, engineer around it, all that good stuff. So a lot of big banks, a lot of uh, big retailers that some of the listeners probably interact with daily, had some amount of involvement in helping them build out their platform. And I've seen a lot of the good, bad, and ugly that that comes along with that process. Right. I like how you say back in the day, I still hung up on that. 
<laughs> it, it's yeah, it's funny in Kubernetes years, right? It's like, you know, most people could say, oh yeah, I've been doing virtual machines for this decades or whatever it might be or, or a decade. And with Kubernetes, it's like five years makes you a extreme veteran, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, you mentioned some of the types of organizations you're working with. I, I'm curious, like what, I mean, this was maybe jumping into the deep end too, too, too fast, but the one, one thing I'm curious about is just what types of applications you see running in, inside those, like what's kind of things are running on Kubernetes at, at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a ton of diversity to this answer. You know, if we were to go back a couple years ago, it was definitely less common for serious stateful workloads to be run inside of Kubernetes. So, you know, a lot of folks who are just getting started, and this includes the, the big organizations too, they were getting started by making sure their stateless web services could run really well in Kubernetes. Applications that they had containerized and running really well would go into Kubernetes. And the idea would be perhaps they've got stateful services in a cloud provider like AWS or in their on-prem data center. They've been running Cassandra reliably for the last forever, uh, as forever as far as Cassandra is concerned. And um, and they would just kind of take that model of not trying to put everything in Cube, but trying to put the containerized stateless apps in Cube. Nowadays, it's, it's definitely a bit different. Uh, you know, not only are people transitioning from their Kubernetes strategy being a bit of like a, a science fair project, if you will, right? Um, you know, they, we're starting to see a lot of folks actually transition into getting workloads into production. And this includes workloads that are stateless and many times stateful. So when you go to, uh, you know, a, a large financial services org, there's a good chance they might be running something like CockroachDB. And CockroachDB is something that they want to run as a service in the cluster so that as they onboard applications, their applications can consume those CockroachDB instances as well. So the short answer is all the applications, really. Yeah. You know, the, the great thing about Cube is you can run most application types in there. I mean, at the end of the day, containers are wrapping a process and doing a couple simple tricks to, to not really simple, but doing a couple tricks to make it to make it run well. And it's just a matter of, um, you know, changing the paradigm a little bit of your application, like how it approaches high availability, how it approaches its ability to be rescheduled, uh, just to make sure it can run well in Cube. And so, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to like, well, actually, it's not so simple. Um, I mean, it's getting easier, but how would you say the experience has been for these organizations overall? Like, is it is it worth the effort and the change to move to a Kubernetes-based platform? Yeah, it's a great question. And as a VMware employee and someone who adores Kubernetes, my answer should probably be yes, but it is <laughs> way more nuanced than that. You know, yeah. one of my first conversation points with a lot of folks with Kubernetes is just making sure that they should be using it in the first place. You know, a, a common, I don't know if this is a cliche at this point, but I'll call it out just in case. If if you're a, a startup that is attempting to acquire market share for your product, and, and you know, at this point in time, there's nothing more import, important than shipping something 
gaining users, so on and so forth. Like I've, I've seen so many startups that both friends and customers uh, work at where, you know, they have this affinity towards, well, we, we really need to solve for scale and, and this thing and that thing and Kubernetes is great. So we should introduce that and, 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 and use it. But the thing that they lose sight of is every second they're operating Kubernetes or working on kind of their infrastructure platform is a second they're taking away from shipping software that helps them get their market share. The, the thing I, I, I tell them is like, your customers don't care whether you're running on Kubernetes, right? It's, unless it's me. If I'm your customer, I'll be like, oh, that's really cool. But aside from me, um, most people aren't really going to care. So if you're that kind of persona, maybe something like Heroku, uh, you know, a, a platform as a service type offering is way more appropriate for you. Now, a lot of these big organizations in, in regards to your question, Danielle, about like the worth, it, it Obviously, the answer is it depends, but a lot of them are really thinking through, you know, how do I kind of standardize on a application platform where we can have this kind of consistent experience to onboard apps and get things deployed and scale them out and have really solid declarative APIs and so on and for so on and so forth. And I think what a lot of these larger organizations are seeing is Kubernetes is kind of a natural evolution for them to get to that state. And, and to be clear, Kubernetes is part of the puzzle for these groups, right? Kubernetes is the, it's the container orchestrator layer. It's not like they should be going in and saying, and we're going to introduce Kubernetes and our problems will be solved. You know, the, more so the problem is, oh, we need to think about how we schedule and think about workloads. So we'll use Kubernetes as kind of that foundational orchestration layer. And then for monitoring, we'll add this piece in. And for uh, source control management and continuous delivery, we'll add this GitOps type flow in with these tools and so on. So, you know, I think... Um, I think the the super honest answer is, is it's a bit to be determined for a lot of these orgs whether the investment is worth it. But in my case, I'm, I'm very lucky to say I've seen a lot of organizations see this process all the way through. And for many of them, they've gone from developers putting in a ticket and getting a virtual machine 14 days later that's misconfigured, and then they have to open up another ticket so that they can finally get their app on it. They've gone from some of those really old legacy models to this completely API-driven container-based system that has enabled them to ship software a lot faster. It has enabled them to have easier primitives for scaling and, and monitoring and traceability. So, you know, it's a really inspiring direction for most enterprises, for most organizations. But I think timing is everything, is really kind of what I'm trying to say in too many words. You really <laughs> have to figure out, is this the right time for you? Josh, can you go into it? You mentioned this and you mentioned scale several times. So it does seem, and I could be mistaken here, right? Like there's a a kind of double-edged sword with Kubernetes where on the one hand it's say, well, it's, if you're not operating at a you know, big scale, it might not be worth it, the, the effort. On the other hand, you know, it seems to be that it gets a little, it seems to be a little more complex the more you get, the more you scale, right? As, as most things probably do. So, I mean, it, does that kind of match? It sounds like maybe that matches your experience and how do you find that balance between like, okay, well, now, now we're at scale. Now this makes a lot of sense, but also how do we manage this thing if we're actually doing it at, you know, let's say bank or me mega retailer scale? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the universal principle that scale makes things more complicated, I am 100% on board with. You you said something really interesting at the first part of that question that I'll call out, which is like, you know, unless you're at a certain scale, should you consider Kubernetes? Now, I you know, in, in a lot of the things I'm saying now I should mention are Josh's opinions. So listeners, please know that you might disagree and that's awesome. But uh, my perspective is very much going a couple years back you know, if you weren't in a state where like, I heard someone say once, like, you have so many machines that you can't remember their names, right? Like, or you have so many machines, you can't like, that could be a really good inflection point for adding an orchestrator that abstracts them like Kubernetes and, and on and on. Today, it's a little different. Like you have to think a couple years ago, we didn't have managed services, uh, per se, like, um, EKS for Amazon, um, TKG from VMware, um, uh, AKS from uh, Microsoft, and of course, GKE, I should call out from Google. And these have lowered the bar a bit. You know, what you can do here is you can go to a provider and you can basically say, give me a cluster and handle some of the bootstrapping and management concerns for me. So I think Kubernetes is at a place today where you don't have to be at mega scale to use it. Um, you can still justify its use, especially if you've got expertise, especially if the container-based models and flows are things that make sense for you. So I'm not saying everyone should use Kube, but you don't necessarily have to be at a massive scale because no longer is it as onerous to operate Kubernetes. Now, the second part of your question, I'm super on board with. Like what ends up happening is, you know, especially when you're one of these large organizations as you gain adoption, right? And, and you actually get people onboarding, you get applications scaling out, things do become way more complicated, um, which I feel like is probably true for almost anything. And, and with Kubernetes, how this kind of shows is, yeah, there's like there's some potential limitations at like technical levels, like uh, or deep lower level concerns, like uh, people using the service abstraction in Kubernetes. It, it by default uses this thing called IP tables. P there have been experiences where you have an insane amount of services with a lot of churn, and that particular piece uh, in in Linux called IP tables doesn't do so well with like mutable changes over time. It can cause some scaling issues with services. So like you end up like at the Linux level having to think through. Oh my gosh, do I? Do I replace this thing called Cube Proxy that like handles this really low level implementation detail? Do I tune Cube Proxy or use it in a different mode? You get a lot of those lower level concerns. Now, there's also higher level concerns. There's like, all right, we're scaling now. Should we, you know, this is the most common one I'd say, should we have one mega cluster that just grows and grows and grows and puts stress on these edges of like um, how much the API server can handle? Um, and how much kind of communication can occur between the state of all these nodes as you go up and up and up? Or should we take this like multi-cluster federated model where we, we have things where we can just instantiate clusters, you know, clusters like cattle, if you will, and just start bootstrapping more and more and more and more. And, and that model is one that we've actually seen a lot of success with with customers at scale. The big trade-off with that multi-cluster model um, is that you end up with a federation problem. Um, and there's open source projects, there's companies that try to solve the federation problem, but I'd say largely it's still pretty difficult where basically you say, now I'm no longer in a world where I have this one scheduler that understands a singular cluster. Now I've got 
27 clusters that I want my developers to be able to deploy to. And most of us don't want our developers to have to worry about which of the 27 clusters to deploy to and then how to make it highly available. We want to build an abstraction or kind of a federation system on top of that, right? So um, so yeah, it, it's it's really just kind of like as, as you scale up, you end up having to think a little bit about, you know, what areas should we scale and how should we approach this? Um, and, and there's a lot of ways to kind of, uh, uh, to use a crude analogy, kind of skin that cat. Yeah. And I, I feel like you, you just kind of covered my next question a little bit, but maybe, you know, kind of a different angle. Like if you think about the things that you've really got to think about, um, kind of the gotchas <laughs> as you move through different stages of setting up a, you know, a production, like getting to that production platform at scale. So like, what are the things you have to think about when you're moving from like desktop to like test development to like production to production at scale, like going through, you know, that process? Are there different concerns along the way? Yeah. I hope this won't feel like a cop-out answer, Danielle. Like, one of the places that I usually start from, because a lot of times it's like, okay, let's let's talk about what are what are the things that I should be, I'm speaking for a company here, what are the things I should be worried about when I get to scale? And the first thing that I tell them is, first, let's worry about needing to get to scale. Because <laughs> so many times we don't even get to that point. And we, we've covered a lot of that already, right? It's like, do I actually benefit from running Kubernetes? Is it beneficial to me? Another really common thing is, if especially if you're building out uh, you know, an application platform on top of Kube where like, you're going to be having monitoring, maybe a service mesh, maybe X, Y, and Z thing to, to benefit the apps, make sure you're engaged with your development teams during that process. It might seem obvious, but it's super sad how many times I go to large organizations that have a build it and they will come mentality. And then they wonder why platform adoption kind of lags. It's because you built something in a silo and and you misaligned some of your decisions with what developers actually need and want. So let's assume you did those two things right and you built a great platform and you got great adoption. So then that gets to, I think, what maybe you were more so getting at. What are are some of the kind of key gotchas? Um, I'll I'll throw a couple off the top of my head that that I commonly see. one of them, as as you start kind of getting adoption, is uh, is really around. Hmm, well, I'll use this one as an example. It's kind of random, but um, choosing your open source tooling wisely. Um, and and this this one is is interesting because we've had this paradigm shift from you know you have a vendor or an enterprise supply you with something to you know, a lot more of a like open source, I can pull it off GitHub type model. Now, open source has always been a thing, don't get me wrong, but it's becoming even more prevalent. And if you look at something like the cloud native landscape, um, there's tons of logos for all types of projects and products out there, right? So the one thing that I'm oftentimes telling folks as they they scale and and choose these different tools is, you know, really think wisely and honestly about the um, onus it puts on you to run some of these these projects. Um, you know, the the common thing I don't know who came up with it that that people say like free as in puppy, not free as in beer for open source. Right? It's very true. Open source is free as in puppy. Sure, it's free for you to download and deploy to your cluster, but when you know your uh, when your container networking solution, let's say you're using um, Cilium as an example. If, if it breaks down on you, who's on the hook 
for solving that problem? Who's on the hook if a, a critical bug comes up and, and sends your production system spiraling? Um, you know, in cases like Cilium or Calico or Antrea, in the case of VMware, a lot of these, these open source projects have enterprise support. So not that you need enterprise support, but the question really is, do you have the operational maturity that when you scale out and something goes wrong, you understand how to work the project, how to work the code, how to fix bugs, how to solve problems. Those are really kind of honest and big things to solve for. Um, and then I guess the, the last thing I would say, um, just to give one more random example is, you know, really commonly when you start scaling out, it's just really scaling out how you manage and how you do SRE like things to the, the many, many different entities you have to worry about. So like in that multi-cluster model, um, you know, let's say you end up with hundreds and hundreds of clusters. How are you going to have an SRE practice around all of these different units that you have to worry about? Um, how are you going to ensure reliability, um, not just for one thing, which might be where you started, but now a hundred things? Um, and, and how are you going to kind of federate and think about kind of the management plane on, on top of all of that stuff? And I think, I think a lot of this is maturing in the cloud native space right now. There's such great stuff happening upstream in products and projects that are out there, but it's very new because if, if I were to predict I think, from at least from Josh's experience, I think um, a lot of folks are just now reaching scale in production. Now, there's tons of people who have been in production with Kubernetes forever, but I think we're kind of hitting more of an inflection point, and now we're starting to see more of the needs for how do I kind of scale out my management capabilities over over many of these clusters. All right, I think that open source discussion is, is interesting too, and I should say, you know, we're working on. Uh, publishing at some point soon, then. And, and maybe it'll be published by the time this airs, so you can go back and look for it. But a buyer's guide to open source, and then one of the things right, we talk about many of those things in terms of what does this actually cost you to run, right? And yeah, who's what's the community look like behind this project? There's just yep. so much happening right now that to pick something out of thin air. What is it, what's been approved by your legal department? Exactly. <laughs> like, yep. You know, because you know, we do actually have to push it to production. Now you have a whole lots, whole other set of concerns. I think so. Right? There's a, yeah. There's a lot with the open source that. Um, that I, maybe it's taken for granted, but uh, sticking specifically to Kubernetes, I want to ask too, like, because you because you mentioned working if you're building out a Kubernetes platform, the importance of working with your develop with your developers, and, and I've heard this from customers and other people, like you know, there's a from both directions. One is developers coming saying, "Hey, we want Kubernetes." Yeah. And the other is this platform team or the ops team coming saying, "Hey, we deploy Kubernetes." So, how have you seen that balance play out? In the field, I mean, is this something driven by developers, by the infrastructure folks? I guess there's benefits to, to both sides, but definitely both, in my experience. And here, here's my current working theory, and I'm still learning about how all this plays out as we see more and more people adopt Cube. <laughs> if you can operate at the intersection of apps and platform, that is the gold place to operate at. Because here's 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 the thing, right? The um, the developers to get their apps into production rarely find Kubernetes to be solely enough. Um, some app teams run their own Kubernetes clusters. So that's that's a bit of a different persona here. But the app teams, when they come to the develop to the platform teams, especially in large orgs, and say, "Oh, we'd really love Kubernetes," what they actually mean is they'd love Kubernetes with a certain ingress uh, controller setup, maybe a service mesh monitoring pre baked in, so they can access stuff, so on and so forth. And then the platform team, you know, they have desires of making sure they have great 
customer satisfaction of their developers. Like, you know, at the end of the day, the platform teams, uh, customers are those development teams. So what I mean by the intersection of apps and platform is here's, here's what I think we're largely doing a lot of the time. Um, there is this, uh, there is a desire to put apps on a, a more modern platform, right? So we start talking about adoption and understanding the apps and we start understanding kind of common patterns like, oh, these apps put into their Java code this mutual TLS system that they bake in. And then, oh, this these Python apps that we're pulling in over here for something machine learning related, they also do service-to-service -service communication over like some mutual TLS thing. And they all have to bake it in via some library that they import and so on and so forth. So then the platform team kind of learns about this common pattern and they're like, okay, this is great. So it sounds like maybe some kind of like service identity system that we could bake into the platform and offer developers would enable them to ship code without having to be worried about identity services intra-code. That's kind of interesting. Okay, cool. So let's think about um, some type of technology. Maybe it's console connect, or maybe it's some service, service mesh technology like Istio, which of course solves a bunch of other problems too. But we bake this into the platform as a platform service. And now we've relieved our app developers of that concern. That is one of the, again, where you can really make your platform super valuable is not just shipping random features, but shipping things that make a lot of sense with your understanding of the app persona. I'll give you one more super random example. I see this quite a bit. So app developers are going in and they're like, oh, you know, we, we so often we have to like talk to this external vault system. Um, vault is a secret management store by, uh, by a company called HashiCorp. It's a great open source project. And, um, and what we find is, okay, every application is having to like import the spring cloud library thing uh, that allows them to communicate with vault. And then the Python developers are having to do the same thing. And the Go developers are having to do the same thing. What if... As a platform service, we set up Kubernetes to integrate with Vault so that an application could come in, ask for a secret that it is allowed to have access to in Vault, and by a, just like a little annotation on a YAML file, Kubernetes goes out, does the magic, and just makes the secret show up in the file system of the container. Like, boom, what an amazingly powerful platform service, right? Uh, so it's those kind of things where, like, don't just guess. <laughs> Work together at that intersection, and what you're going to end up delivering is something that is insanely valuable for both the infrastructure team and, and also the app developers. Awesome. Um, Josh, I'm kind of wondering, just going back to talking about open source and the Kubernetes community, are there holes in the in Kubernetes that you think you know still ought to be filled by the community? Like, what's what's missing, or where, or where are we headed? Yeah, it's a great question. The gaps. Yeah, I think I think a lot of things are really in flight right now. So I'll, I'll include gaps to include things that like people are actively working on. But I think we're still pretty early days. Like you heard me mention many times, I think federation is a pretty big one. Um, there's been great traction. I know there's a bunch of humans doing awesome work here, so I'm not trying to discount that. It's just it's pretty early days, and I don't think we've really seen something kind of uh, fill that gap completely just yet. 
um, you know, kind, kind of like just to give an analogy, like kind of like service mesh, like we all knew maybe we needed to fill this service mesh gap for people who have the right need to implement a service mesh. And we saw players kind of come up like Istio and Linkerd, and now that's got its own thriving ecosystem. I think, I think Federation is definitely one of those big ones. Um, I think a lot on kind of like the... I guess a bit on the kind of app side, we're, we're, we're really we're really kind of moving up the stack at this point, in my opinion. As as Kubernetes becomes more and more boring, um, there's there's a lot of really interesting things happening on the app side that are filling gaps. Like, how do we appropriately abstract Kubernetes to make sure developers can be successful without becoming a Kubernetes expert? That's a super interesting space because it's a balancing act, right? A lot of times it's it's a little naive to say, well, we're just going to completely build a full abstraction. Developers will never know they're using Kubernetes and we'll keep exposing the right knobs to the developers over time. Like some really solid engineering orgs are successful at that model, but many can't do that. And Kubernetes offers so many great features that a lot of times we want to expose a little bit of that to developers. So like, you know, I think where I'm going with this is examples like GitOps. GitOps has become this really interesting model now where we're starting to see it play out, where developers can focus more on, I commit the thing to Git, and maybe I don't really understand all the things that get picked up in order to kind of make it happen, right? Um, as we see things like uh, things inspired by Cloud Foundry kind of come into the Kubernetes ecosystem, that's also a really interesting place that I think uh, we'll see some traction. Like if those of you who have ever used Cloud Foundry have probably heard of things like CF Push. Like how could I, from my source control repo, say, push this app? And all the different things kind of happen and it just becomes available. Like that's that's a really interesting developer experience too. So I, I, I would say if I were to hedge my bets on just two, because I could talk forever about this, mm-hmm. I'd say federation of clusters is, is a really interesting space. And then I just think upstack, like developer onboarding. You know, we're, we're getting really good at Kubernetes. How do we make it frictionless for the people whose day job isn't Kubernetes to benefit from all the awesomeness that Kubernetes offers? Yeah, on a related note, I wanted to ask too: is is there a do you see in like a standard application or like a Kubernetes application architecture, right, or a standard development experience, developer experience? I mean, are these things are we are we heading in that direction? As you talk about all just all the you know the tools that are kind of getting critical mass and and the way that they might be exposed to developers, is there is there you know are we heading toward a point where if I'm a developer, if I'm building an application that's going to run in Kubernetes, I kind of you know, I'm kind of I'm architecting it in a certain way, right? I'm I'm expecting a certain experience and I'm building it in a certain way because that's just like made on maybe it's like the lamp stack for, for <laughs> right or something. I, my answer is not really. I, I mean, it is it's super interesting. Like speaking to like the application architecture, I help people run monoliths on Kubernetes all the time. It works great. There's not you can run a monolith on Kubernetes. You don't you don't have to rearchitect into a 97 factor microservice architecture that is compliant with X, Y, and Z standard. You know, there are definitely things you got to do to get your app in Kubernetes. It's maybe possibly got to run in a container, although there's some really interesting projects to make virtual machines first-class citizens. Um, you probably want it to be able to be highly available, resilient to scheduling events. There's, there's you know, exposing probes for its readiness and liveness of the application. Like there are these small things, but largely we can make things run pretty well in Kube. Um, so as far as like how people are architecting and building apps, I'm seeing 
an insane amount of diversity. I mean, when I go customer to customer, I feel like I'm not even talking about the same Kubernetes anymore because like the use cases and um, the application types and their their stacks vary so much, which I think speaks volumes to Kubernetes. Like while Kubernetes is a lot of an investment to build out and determine which knobs to turn, it also can handle a lot because it did a beautiful job of making things extensible, customizable, and so on. Um, and then as far as kind of the, the more downstream thing, like is there common kind of like build and deploy patterns? Um, I see a lot of diversity here too, like, uh, or, or variants, I should say, where some folks are just linking their old Jenkins system up to Cube uh, that runs outside of Cube and just deploying, and that's perfectly fine. I, I think the GitOps model is gaining a lot of traction because like it's such a good intersection. Git is something that developers understand, platform people understand. You know, it's like, hey, commit this thing, and then all the other things will happen is super compelling for a lot of organizations. And and you know, and as far as like containerizing and on all the interesting stuff that's happening, there's so much going on right now. Like build packs, um, and I know Red Hat has like a source to image system too. Where like with build packs, let's look at the source code and figure out how to make the container image without you having to understand how to write a Docker file. But then I go to another organization that's like, no, we really like the declarative nature of Docker files. Like it declares what's going to be built. It's super clear. Like we like this. Like and that's perfectly fine. So. Um, I, I think I think there's definitely a lot of fragmentation to answer your question as far as right. like how all these things fit together. But at the same time, that fragmentation is like a lot of healthy variants because there are simply so many styles to deploying and building software. And I think Kubernetes can support the the 90 percentile of those of those approaches. Okay, Josh. So given all of that, do, do you think like like what how mature of an organization, I guess, technologically, and, and because maybe some of the diversities of this a function of the, the the technological maturity of companies that are adopting this right now, but how, like in order to do Kubernetes well right now, I mean, what kind of, you know, if we look at digital transformation or throw or cloud native or throw or modernization or any of these kind of bigger picture things, how far along that journey does, someone, does a company need to be to really be able to take advantage of, of Kubernetes effectively today? Right. I, I think... Uh, I think a good starting point, and I'm, I'm sorry to generalize here for everyone who's listening, but I think a really good starting point is like thinking about the things that Kubernetes solves and whether it's actually aligned with problems you need to solve today. If you look at your current setup and your software is, I don't know, let's say buggy, it has stability issues, it has X, like... Kubernetes is probably not going to fundamentally solve that problem. In fact, it might distract you from actually solving real problems. Um, you might actually need application work and re-architecture of apps. And maybe you need to put a microservice back into a monolith or a monolith needs to be broken up into a microservice. Like Those are things that Kubernetes inherently shouldn't be viewed as, in my opinion, as a, a forcing function to solve. So the way I'd say it is like, be weary of that really ambitious engineer that comes into your org all of a sudden and says... Oh, and we should add Kubernetes to our roadmap, <laughs> unless there's really good alignment for why that should occur. Not to state the obvious, but that why question is super, super critical. Now, as far as maturity goes, you know, maturity can mean so many things and has so many different axes to it. But, you know, again, the, the first starting point is like, will the things Kubernetes solves actually help us out? And then you take a step up from that and say, do we actually have organizational experience running Kubernetes? And if the answer is no, how quickly could we get spun up on it? 
are we cool with uh, using managed services like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, VMware services that give us Kubernetes in a much easier way that negate the need for us to manage the control plane and otherwise. That'll take a lot of operational burden off you. But if you're evaluating like, okay, we have a lot of operational maturity and we want to run our own cube, are we ready to handle lifecycle management concerns of the cluster? Are we ready to handle um, building on top of Kubernetes? Because remember, it's rare that Kubernetes in and of itself is enough. It's usually a foundation we build upon, right? So it's really just kind of being honest about what would that future state look like? And what's the engineering effort involved? And, and I'm not going to say you're going to be able to get that number right. Like we need this many humans and this many hours. Obviously, that's naive to think it's it's that simple of, a, of algebra. But trying to just have that kind of sit down moment where you really think about the benefit to cost analysis and really understanding your team. You know, going back to that, that startup Heroku example I gave where I said, if market share is your biggest thing, maybe Cube isn't right for you. On the flip side, if I land on that team and there are a bunch of really amazing system engineers and Kubernetes experts and heck, maybe they know more about Kubernetes than they do about Heroku, I'd be open to having that conversation about Kubernetes. Heck yeah. Let's spin up something on, on a cloud provider. Let's run our app stack on Kubernetes. Done deal. So all of these have gotchas and kind of corner cases, but generally speaking, I hope that gives kind of a sense of, of how I would at least view view that question about maturity and and timing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's just a matter of having heard customers talk about this too in various in various formats. Right there, there's there's this idea of right sometimes like our like their applications just are not ready. Right, they need to be like exactly. you know from an architectural standpoint, you're just and your team. <laughs> you don't have people who can work with. So that's right. That's kind of what I was getting at. It's just like, it's just not, if you're a fortune 500 company, like you might have some fantastic, ta fantastically talented people and modern stuff in some parts of the org, but in other parts, right. It might be looking like it's the, the 1980s. And so I think that's, that's perfectly the, put. And if I could just say something, it's like, we all have an insanely long list of problems. <laughs> and I just want to make sure that you know that Kubernetes solves the important ones up top. And if it doesn't, maybe injecting it is actually going to cause more work and pain for you than it's going to benefit you. <laughs> all right. Okay. So, so uh, anything else, Josh? Or is that, a, is that a good ending place? That was, I think, a good ending place, at least for me. I super appreciate y'all having me. It was, it was great to kind of throw some thoughts out here. And at least, again, a lot of this is just opinion. So it was great to be able to kind of voice my opinion. And I'm, I'm super interested to hear, you know, what people think. So no, we yeah. love having you, Josh. We're going to have you back for a GitOps discussion. Let's do it. <laughs>